Welcome to the podcast of the European Society of Anesthesiology and Intensive Care. I am your host, Alex Rawlings, and today I would like to introduce you to Professor Doris Ostergaard. Professor Ostergaard holds a professorship in medical education and simulation at the University of Copenhagen and is head of research of the Copenhagen Academy for Medical Education and Simulation, CAMES, capital region of Denmark. She is also chair of the SIX Simulation Committee. Her research activities are within the areas of patient safety, clinical and simulation-based training of individuals, teams and organizations. Her goal is to link these areas through her educational and research activities. Professor Ostergaard, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. So I would like to start with my first question. It's been over 30 years since To Err Is Human highlighted the scale of preventable harm in healthcare. Change has been slow, but it has been happening, and there is still a long way to go. What do you think have been the greatest obstacles to change? Well, I think that it has been very difficult for healthcare professionals to look further than being a medical expert. So making them see that human factors are important, that you need to train social and cognitive skills in order to support the medical expertise skills. Okay. And what what dogma has been the most difficult to overcome? I, I think the most difficult one was to see one do one, to change that paradigm uh, and make people see that it's necessary actually for learners to try to apply knowledge and skills in, for instance, a simulation. And that's sort of the patient safety part of it. And the debriefing part where the reflection about the simulation takes place, it's sort of where the, the pedagogical aspect of simulation is seen as important. And do you think that simulation has, has really helped evolve the pedagogy of of medical education? It has. Um, There's a lot of uh, literature, there's evidence that simulation works, Mm -hmm. uh, that it's possible to transfer the skills from the simulation setting to the clinical setting, uh, and that actually it's not only looking at do they learn, but you can also look at outcome and see that it actually improves patient outcome. And what do you think have been the the greatest obstacles for having simulation more involved in medical education? I think it has been to make people change. Uh, I mean, professors, uh, they think they are good lecturers, and they are. Uh, But that's not enough. Uh, So how can we convince people that you need sort of a toolbox where you sometimes take a lecture, sometimes take a workshop, practical skill station and sometimes you take up well now we need to do simulation based training and simulation based training is much more than a mannequin Uh, it is also role playing uh, with actors for instance Uh, then of course one of the obstacles has been uh, the financial issue that simulation is more expensive because the team in the simulation setting is four to six to eight people, whereas in a lecture room you can encompass 300, 400 people. Uh, so, so it's a matter of saying, well, when do I use what for what learning objectives? Um, we already, I already mentioned the professors, 
uh, because uh, not all the professors wanted to join a simulation faculty, uh, and and but some did, and it has been a fruitful collaboration with people knowing how to run simulation and professors, so they sort of do things together, develop together. And what obstacles to change have you faced personally in your, in your career, and how did you overcome them? Can you give us any examples? Well, I think um, I always believed in simulation. So, so actually, I started doing simulation in '96. Uh, that's many years ago, uh, and my first success was to convince the National Board of Health that this is something that we should do in Denmark. It was in '99, uh, but. But often you you were ahead of time, mm. uh, that you saw that this is going to be big, this is important, but people didn't believe you. And then sometimes you just have to wait, step, as, step as aside and say, well, how, how do I then convince them? Which data should I collect? Which research should I do in order to convince the decision makers that this is the right thing to do? Is the, the challenge for every visionary, isn't it, that they often see the potential before others see it. Uh, and it's then the difficulty of, of helping others to see that vision in the way that you see it and, and the potential that it that Yeah, you exists. see the need of the learner, yeah. of the yeah. patients and the organization. Uh, and you try to, to develop things that will solve that, the challenges that they have. So, and, and I think it's more important than ever because the technological evolution is so fast. Uh, we are short of staff, so we need to find ways where you can train people very rapidly to make them feel confident uh, and that we as educators can trust that they can actually handle the patients in a safe, in a safe way. What change do you think would accelerate most the integration of, of, of a safety culture? Well, I think we should measure patient safety culture. Um, uh, and then I think we should use the data both at a local level because it's, it's not sort of the truth that, that you get by measuring patient safety culture, mm. but you get something that you can discuss in your team or department and wonder why do people answer like this what's beneath it and that discussion is very fruitful for learning uh, and to improve and the other thing is that I think we need to collect data at an organizational level for instance in my own um, region uh, it is clear that anesthesiologists are much more mature than surgeons uh, so, but we work in a team in the OR. Mm. So what does it mean that we have a different opinion on patient safety culture? What does it mean for patient safety? Uh, and, and, and if we, we are, as an anesthesiologist, we are very mature. We have worked with this for many, many years, but the surgeons have not. So we are not to scold them. We are to get them in and in order to help them understand why is what we do so important. And nurses as well are very yes. aware of safety. Yes. Uh, and yeah. they're part of that team as well, aren't they? We also know that, that um, if, patient, if, if staff are healthy, mm. not mentally strained, it has a positive impact on teamwork. Mm. And a good teamwork have a good influence on patient safety. 
So, so it's that there are different things to do to improve what we do for patients. And I know that at Keynes, you do a lot of work with psychological safety. We do. And could you say a little bit about that? Um, I, I think um, it's so important that we learn in the workplace. We, it's important to go at a conf- conference like this, mm-hmm. but it's also too important to learn at home with the team you work with. Uh, and uh, in order to do that, we need to have a safe learning environment where it's okay to give feedback, uh, not only to trainees, but to seniors and to other professions. Again, the anesthesiologist, the surgeon. Uh, but it's so easy not to do it. If you don't, if you're not psychologically safe, you don't ask questions, mm-hmm. you don't ask for feedback, you don't speak up if you see that something could be improved for the patient. So it's really dangerous if we don't have that psychological safe environment. And that's part of what we call a just culture, isn't it? Uh, it is. Uh, and and uh, in my country, we had uh, the Act of Patient Safety in 2004 okay. uh, and, and uh, established a confidential uh, reporting system, uh, which is now sort of, it has developed. Uh, so now we actually say, well, we don't want uh, incidents of, of, of no value. We want people to report the things that can provide learning for others. So it's, it's, it's really about being more, as a, not standing still, but, but moving forwards with all this. And is there resistance to that? Is there resistance to being more open and, and transparent about incidences that have gone wrong or even near misses that could provide an opportunity for learning? Yes. Uh, it's, it's not all that easy because we also have a, a government looking at uh, what's going on. Are there? Of course, they, they want to find the rotten apples. Yeah. But, but for me, as an edu- educationalist, I want to identify the spots where we can improve. Yeah. And you, you cannot improve if, you, if it's not a safe learning environment. So, so you have to, to understand that errors, mistakes happens and uh, we have also worked uh, a lot with training the learners to provide information about incidents to patients and relatives and it means being able to provide an excuse say I'm I'm sorry but on behalf of me or the organization that this happens to you we would like to learn from it and in Denmark, it's also possible for patients to report mm-hmm. to the incidence system. And, and we have been discussing, would it be fruitful that we do it together, the, the patients and the persons involved in it? Yeah. Uh, because then you have both sides of, sides of the coin, so yeah. to say. Um, but that, that doesn't work yet. But it could be a way forward. There could be, it could be surprising, the type yeah. of results yeah. that come out of yeah. that. So, so for instance, for, for medical students, already at, at that point, we learned them how to inform patients and relatives about an incident. And, and I think that's the way forward, that we start early. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and for that, we also use simulation. Not a mannequin, but an, an actor. And have you had any feedback from patients and relatives that have been on the receiving end of, of this new skill set? We have not collected data as such, but we know that they really appreciate 
to get an excuse yeah. for what happened. Yeah. And they, I think almost all of them, they, they see the need for a learning system yeah. and that this will not happen again to another person. And that's the important thing. In, in, in all learning systems, mistakes are an integral part of a process of learning. You, you learn from them. You learn from them, and yeah. you, you can't you can't even have a learning process without mistakes. So, it's it's a shame that we missed that opportunity. In yeah. The, and um, what have been the most notable notable advancements in patient safety, in your view? Well, I think it's the focus on social and cognitive skills. We previously called them non-technical skills because that's the, the term that they used in aviation, but somehow yep. it doesn't fit uh, in, in our world. So we have gone back to the, um, to the definition of non-technical skills, and that's social skills, okay. communication, leadership, collaboration, and the cognitive skills, which is situation awareness and decision-making. And I think uh, almost all departments, they focus on social skills in okay. trauma team training, in cardiac arrest training, but, but we do not do so much is being explicit about we how we as an expert gather information our situation awareness and how we take decisions mm. so so that's what we need to work more with both in simulation and in the clinical setting so if you are the consultant you have to explain to the junior why did I decide as I did yeah uh, and on what premises yeah yeah I think there are there are many surprises there as well as to how experts make decisions and, yeah. and um, how they are connected not only to experience but to emotion and perception and, and uh, there's a wealth of, of experience there to pass on to the younger generations. And yeah, and also as uh, anesthesiologists, we very seldom work together. Uh, you, you have your OR, you are in in a room in the intensive care, yeah. and I think we should spend more time on sort of trying to improve yeah. uh, and that means that I ask you will you go with me for this case and would you please focus on my communication with the relative or the, okay. or the child and okay. you give me feedback because I want to improve continuously mm -hmm. I, I know there are other organizations like the fire brigade in America even the military they use um, simulations for training decision making yes um, Can you give an example about how you train decision-making in a simulated environment, in a simulator? A very good example is airway management. Uh, okay. And uh, the dangerous thing is the, uh, the unanticipated difficult airway situation okay. uh, because that happens so seldom. Uh, and there I see a change, at least uh, in, in my institution, that they call for help early. The consultant call for help early okay. so that there are two consultants in the room yeah. and they help each other they get the we have nurses so so the nurse takes care of the monitoring and uh, finding the things that they need okay. but there's one they have a dialogue together yeah. uh, in in sort of discussing well we have this situation should we is is it a situation where we need to progress because surgery is Uh, an emergency uh, operation yeah. Yeah. or is it an elective case where we should decide to wake up the patient okay. so they help each other with, with that decision and, and if you hear them they are really sort of collecting vital parameters who are we what are we experienced in doing the patient what's best for the patient 
and the surgeons in the room. So it's sort of a, a decision based on many parameters. Yeah. And, and that makes it more better. Yeah, so yeah. It makes it better. I can yeah. understand. It takes yeah. the weight of the so, responsibility away so, as well. So we run that simulation. We run it in the yeah. simulation center. Okay. Uh, both for the juniors and the seniors. And how did the seniors respond to that? Uh, I, I think they realized that it's a good thing to, to train this because it happens so seldom. Mm -hmm. um, and if you manage to provide them feedback, create the safe environment, then they really like it. And they, they appreciate the debriefing where they can actually discuss with each other because that's so seldom possible in the clinical setting. And that's also because there's a, a simulation centers maintain a standards for psychological safety in their debriefing. Yes, yes, and, and yeah. have a structure for debriefing yeah. and uh, and create a safe learning environment also there. Yeah. And that also leads me to a question about um, you know, the pace of which we are developing and collecting medical information uh, and research means that learning now has to be a continuous lifetime mm. process mm. The, the old model of you do your time in medical school and you come out and you have your time as a, as a resident or trainee and then you are established in your field um, is no longer the paradigm that we are dealing no. with. with collecting big data means that we are processing an enormous amount of new information um, so how do you see simulation playing a role in continuous medical education especially for those who are at the the, the the latter end of their career? Um, what we're doing right now is, we have done a study, we have surveyed uh, anesthesiologists in how often they use a given airway management tool, for instance. Okay. Uh, we have uh, developed an e-learning platform where you can test your knowledge. Uh, and it's an adaptive system, so you answer the, the multiple choice question, uh, and then you answer whether you know or you guess sort of there's a four okay. four four like it scheme and then you can there are learning resources there uh, and then you have your results and when you come back three months or six months later the system adapts to where you had difficulties the last time so it, it sort of uh, gives me the information of where do I focus on knowledge on consultants knowledge then they also, in, in the questionnaire, they said, well, we want to train every half year on skill training, airway management. So this is established now, and we try to develop sort of uh, uh, checklists to, to see, well, where are they? Can they do it? And it's not that they fail, but they get feedback on where they're, they were really good, keep on doing this. Where do you have difficulties? Uh, and how will you then overcome these difficulties, when will you ask for help in the clinical situation? So it's not now you're grounded, you're not allowed to do airway management. It's about refining your skills as a senior. Mm. It's, it's not that they can't do it. And then we discussed whether it would be possible uh, half a year later to run team training for the nurse and the junior and, and the senior. Uh, and, in, and in the simulations to take situations like the unanticipated difficult airway or mm -hmm. anaphylactic shock or the, yeah. the situations where you need to improve your situation awareness and your decision-making skills and your response time yeah. As well. yeah yeah, yeah. 
Uh, and, and do you find that, that senior practitioners are open to this? Is there a specific way that you have to sell this to them? I, I don't... Not all are ready. Yeah. Uh, but, but if you start and uh, the, the consultants who has already been there go home and said this was a great experience, then the others will come. Yeah, yeah. yeah I can yeah. understand that. Um, and what do you think lies on the horizon for simulation-based education? Well, um, we, we are very um, eager to use simulation as an analysis tool, uh, both looking at patient safety incidents and errors and try in the simulated setting to sort of create the situation, run the situation and learn from it. And also, um, that, that there is a movement, they call it translational research, translational simulation, where you take the simulator out in the clinical setting yep. and you test different situations. For instance, a patient comes in with the stroke in, in the emergency unit and you sort of look at what happens. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can also do um, FRAM analysis where you afterwards sort of interview the people in why did you choose to do as you did. Yep. Uh, you can look at workflow. Uh, and what we have done recently is that the hospital were to move to a new environment where the uh, hospital asked us to run 10 different scenarios to see what happens if a patient comes to the emergency unit. What happens in the OR? What happens in the neonatal resuscitation unit? And, and we did that before they actually moved in and wow. we found we identified so many patient safety threats wow. and some of them they actually had to do something about before they moved in yeah. Yeah. Um, so so it has a great potential and the thing is that if you move out and do the simulations in in the real setting the the, the staff involved in the simulations they feel that they are part of identifying the challenges but also to identify possible solutions, which actually will help implementation mm. of the stuff. So, so I believe in simulation as an educational tool, yeah. but also as an analysis tool. And That's the future. And it's also incredibly empowering for the staff that may already be aware of potential problems, but don't have the, the avenue of, of being able to communicate that and to make a change happen. And then you can come in with a simulator and prove a problem mm. Uh, mm. And, and for them they can uh, they can see change happening yeah which is hugely important and I think that's important for them because you in a reporting system if nothing happens based oh, on the report yeah. then then they are frustrated but yeah. if they can see well now they actually look at handover or whatever uh, and we yeah. do something about it yeah it's, it's hugely uh, yeah. hope-giving um, what excites you most about your current work uh, that we still develop uh, and um, I think uh, as we dis discussed this morning you have to, s to take the path upwards and, and continue to look at what are the challenges and how can I contribute to, to solve them that we have to be much more transformative uh, we have to be innovative and uh, I think it's, it's my job to help that it's a wonderful, a wonderful message, yeah. uh, and, um, a and, wonderful and not only me, the simulation yeah. committee. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, and, yeah. and the amount of people that dedicate their time to yeah. that and the, and the work that uh, you do. 
Doris Ostergaard, thank you very much for your time. That was a fascinating interview. Um, thank you, everybody, to listening to this episode. Uh, the SAIC releases monthly podcasts on the SAIC website and various streaming platforms. We hope you will join us for the next one. <laughs>